Take your Bibles if you have them. Turn with me this evening to Mark chapter 3. Very good. Christ's brethren. Not a long passage today, but a few things to say about it. Mark chapter 3, looking at verses 31 through 35, finishing up our time in Mark 3 this evening. In Mark 3, we began with Jesus' healing, uh, healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. From there, we trace Jesus to a small ship where he would separate himself lest the multitudes throng him. He would go into a mountain where he commissioned his 12 disciples. And then he entered into a house again where the multitudes thronged him so completely that he could not even so much as eat. It was that Jesus was to some degree exhausted beside himself, the scriptures tell us, and his friends tried to help him. The scribes attribute this idea of him being beside himself to uh, having some devil, saying that he cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils, ascribing his power to Satan. And Jesus corrects them in this, as we talked about last week, saying that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so it would not make sense that Satan would cast out Satan, for then his kingdom must fall. So we talked about that idea, but then we also saw him warn against this unforgivable sin that is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God. And we asked, what would would that unforgivable sin be? And as we trace the scriptures and recognize that it is the testimony of the power of God and the Holy Spirit through the Holy Spirit, that is the thing that Jesus uh, saw on that day. And so as we compare scripture with scripture, we say, what would be a sin that would be uh, an unforgivable sin that is also one that blasphemes the Holy Spirit by rejecting his testimony in the hearts of men. And we say, well, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men is that men are sinners, that they are separated from God, that because they are separated from God, they are under judgment, but that Jesus Christ is righteous and he has come to save them from judgment. And if they will repent of the sin of unbelief and they will accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, then they will be saved. And so we connected those dots to say that this unforgivable sin, the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, is to reject that testimony in the hearts of men. It's to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we had no insight into any transition between times and locations today. This house into which Jesus had entered and subsequently had been thronged, where his friends were attempting to help him in order that he might get some measure of rest and nourishment, uh, might still very well be where we are. We know that Jesus is in a place where he is yet being thronged, where multitudes are about him. And it is that narrative that we pick up in, in verses 31 and following of Mark chapter 3. So we read this. The Bible says, There came then his brethren and his mother... And standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. So Jesus is in a house. And the Bible tells us that Jesus' brethren and his mother stood outside, and they were calling him. They wanted to speak with him. They wanted to see him, something to that effect. Presumably, they were unable to get to him specifically because of the number of people that were around him. If things were so crowded that Jesus was struggling even to accomplish the regular and various tasks of life, such as eating, then you might imagine it would be very difficult for someone who is on the outside of that crowd to find their way in to get into Jesus' direct proximity. So the multitude sat around Jesus multitudes, having heard that Jesus' mother and brethren were outside calling him, it had filtered through those multitudes and gotten to him that his mother and his brethren without, on the outside, seek for him. Now we expect that this would have been Jesus' mother Mary and some of his brothers, of which we knew Jesus had several. We read Jesus' reply in verses 33 through 35, our whole text this evening. And he answered them saying, Who is my mother? Or my brethren. And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. So Jesus gives a somewhat startling reply here. He asks, Who is my mother and my brethren? To which everyone around him likely would have pointed to the door and said, Remember, we just said they're out there. That lady and those dudes over there, that's your mother and those are your brethren. 
And then he looks around at those who have pressed him, at those who are sitting around him, those who have packed so close that he can't even move. And he said, behold, my mother and my brethren. And he explains why he would say such a thing. Why would it be that he would say that these were his mother and his brethren? He says, whoever does the will of God, these are those who are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. The ones who will do the will of God, that is my family. And as I said, this is our entire text this evening. That's all we're going to read because we have a number of things to talk about as it relates to this. I want to talk about three things as it relates to this this evening. First, I want to talk about Mary. Then I want to talk about family. And finally, I want to talk about the church. So first, let's talk about Mary. We recognize that a significant portion of the history of Christianity in the West has run through the institution that is called the Roman Catholic Church. As a matter of fact, even the songs that we have sung uh, this morning and this evening as we get close to Christmas, I mentioned this morning, Gloria in Excelsis Deo. The only reason why we sing that portion of the song in Latin is because of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church upon Christian tradition. Even as we think through the ideas uh, of um, Mary and of, of Bethlehem and, and of the wise men and such, so much of that is rooted in the ideas or the traditions that found their way through this, the centuries from the Roman Catholic Church. And I want to familiarize you with the Roman Catholic, what the Roman Catholic Church has historically determined as it relates to the person of Mary, so that we can understand why this passage is actually quite important as it relates to our thinking about Mary. And then we'll talk about where the Bible stands with regard to these things. I apologize. Uh, I, I always forget when I make the, the slides at home that I need to turn them into a picture and then put them up so that they don't get reformatted here. So there's going to be a little bit of formatting woes on the screen here. My apologies for that. But hopefully you can get the general idea um, from this uh, particular timeline. The history of the church is traced in a couple of different ways. Naturally, the Catholic church traces the history of, uh, traces Christian history through its institution. Because the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, believes it is the only and true Church of Christ, they trace the, the Church through them. Reformers, such as Lutherans, Presbyterians, and Anglicans, would likely not argue this fact. And the reason why they would likely not argue this fact is because they were Reformers. They sought to reform the Catholic Church. They did not initially seek to come outside of the Catholic Church, but only to reform the Catholic Church. And then when it would not be reformed, then they became what were considered Protestants, and they came outside of the Church. But that was not their initial intention, hence the reason why uh, you see many of the same traditions and liturgies and, tra and expectations in these uh, uh, various churches as you would in Catholicism. They were re Reformation movements that simply failed. And then you have the separatist religions, namely throughout history, the Methodists and the Baptists. And these would reject the idea entirely that the Catholic Church uh, should be the institution through which we should trace church history, instead believing that the true church existed in spite of the Church of Rome, not through or because of the Church of Rome. Of Rome. Now, in the early church, the desire to maintain unity compelled what we call councils. We see an example of a council, the first council in Acts chapter 15 in the New Testament. And in that particular chapter, Paul goes to Jerusalem and he goes there to stand before the elders of the church of Jerusalem in order to clear out doctrinal matter. And the doctrinal matter that they were going to clear up on that day is whether or not men needed to observe the law of Moses in order to be regarded as followers of Christ. And it was particularly surrounding that, uh, that, that uh, ordinance or tradition of circumcision that the Jews were compelled to align with as it related to the Mosaic law going all the way back, in fact, to Abraham, as we'll consider in the uh, weeks to come. Uh, we've got Christmas coming up, so may, maybe a little later than typical, but we'll consider in the weeks to come in Genesis. 
And so Paul places himself before the council and he brings a man named Titus who is uncircumcised. And it is revealed that Titus bears the marks of one who has the Holy Spirit of God, though he is uncircumcised. And Paul argues this point, but there were many believing Pharisees who were there saying this is not the way it's supposed to be until Peter stands up and Peter affirms that the Holy Spirit indeed has fallen on Gentiles for indeed he was the one who saw the Holy Spirit fall upon Cornelius. He was the one who saw the vision of the sheets, whereby Jesus said, do not call that unclean, which I have called clean. And it was determined that by this council that it was not the case that men had to be circumcised or had to keep the law. And this determination was then commanded to be spread throughout the known world to every place where the Christian church existed. So that a singular group of people that were, as it were, the elders of the church conferred upon an item of, of great import whereby the apostles came together and discussed this and then they determined what was true before God and then they disseminated that. They did not make up the truth. They did not establish the truth. They identified the truth and then they disseminated that truth throughout the known Christian world as a means by which to keep the church is unified in doctrine. And that is, in fact, where the name Catholic came from. That word Catholic meaning universal. And the idea is that the early church sought very hard, though they were a scattered body of believers, to remain unified. Catholic in doctrine. Now, over the next several centuries, these, counseled continue, these councils continued in this fashion. With respective representatives of every region, whenever there was a debate or a concern, whenever there were questions in the church, and those questions would filter out through the churches and there was great debate about them, the churches of every region would then appoint those who were trusted representatives of their understanding of the Word of God, and those representatives would all meet together in a certain place and they would discuss together what the Word of God said and discern what was the truths of the Word of God. And then once they had discerned and agreed on what was the truth of the word of God, then they would disseminate that back through all the regions of the church as a means by which, again, to stay unified. <coughs> now, these councils are regarded by all faith groups as authoritative up until about the mid-300s A.D. Whether you're talking about the Roman Catholic Church or you're talking about what, what would be the Reformed denominations or whether you're talking about the Separatist denominations, we all agree that everything up until around 300 to 350 A.D. is generally acceptable as it relates to the councils, authoritative as it relates to how the church determined that the Word of God ought to be interpreted. Things changed, however, very early in the 300s because in 313 AD, there was an emperor of Rome named Constantine. And in 313 AD, Emperor Constantine issued an edict called the Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan not only legalized Christianity throughout the Roman Empire, but it actually declared Christianity to be the, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And so now you can imagine that after hundreds and hundreds of years of the, the, the Caesar, of the emperor, claiming himself to be God and having been worshipped throughout the empire as God himself, and now he is declaring that there is only one true God and it is Jehovah and that this Christianity is the one true religion, you can imagine what would happen. As you and I would expect... In the decades following Christianity becoming the state-sanctioned and mandated religion, Christianity saw a tremendous amount of popularity. And with that popularity came compromise. Why? Because all the unbelievers in the nation did what unbelieving pagan religious people do. They did what they were told. They, they, they worship the person that the person in charge tells them to worship so they don't get in trouble. So now the churches become filled with people who are claiming to be Christians, but who have never known Christ. And Christian, rather than all of these pagans flocking into the church and Christians Christianizing them, leading them all to Christ, it very rarely works that way. Instead, all of these pagans flocked into the church and the church became paganized. So that as history moved from the 300s to the 400s and beyond, 
the influence of pagan religions upon the church became very noticeable. Now, as we trace the history of Mary, there's only one of the councils that specifically spoke to the, the, the person of Mary that all groups, including we separatists uh, in the Baptist denomination, would agree with, and that would be the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. In 325 A.D., this council came together to affirm what the Bible says in its clarity, that Jesus was, in fact, born of a virgin, meaning that Mary, at the point of Jesus' conception and, her, and, and his birth, was, in truth, a virgin. And we believe this, we agree with this, as it relates to Mary, and we agree with it for the simple reason, not because the Council of Nicaea determined it. We didn't say, well, the cutoff date for the councils is 335, and this was in 325, so, so it must be true. Well, no, we agree with it because the Bible says it. Right? We agree with the council because the council agrees with what the Word of God says. We don't trust the council. We don't elevate the council. We don't venerate the council. Uh, it doesn't matter if they're early church fathers. What we do is we believe the Bible. And we say, yeah, that council got it right. Mary was a virgin. The Bible says it. We know it to be true. At this point, the clear and obvious uh, influence of paganism, however, begins to find its way into the church. And the church collective is turning from just a Catholic church of groups of people who are trying to stay unified into what we call the Roman Catholic Church, which assumed that name of Catholic, but brought into its midst great paganism and idolatry. It became a pagan institution filled with idolatry. And that leads us to 431 A.D. And in 431 A.D., the Catholic Church held another council called the Council of Ephesus. And this is where they accepted the identity of Mary as the mother of God. Now, this in and of itself is not directly threatening. As a matter of fact, as, as uh, those who are, are, are on the furthest fringes of accepting any sort of legitimacy of what we call today the Roman Catholic Church as an institution of Christ, um, we would look at this and say, well, it's possible. I'm, I, I'm, I'm generally okay with the idea of Mary being called the mother of God and that we believe that Jesus is, in fact, God in flesh and that Mary was, in fact, Jesus' mother. So the phrase mother of God does not necessarily trouble one on the surface. However, it is an error and one which would be used not in that day, but as these councils would continue to effectively deify Mary throughout the years. And this error finds its way back to what we've talked about before. I talked about it in our Genesis series. We talked about it back in the Revelation series. The mother-child cult that has existed in satanic and pagan worship since the days of early humanity. The history of the mother-child cult is a system of worship which deifies a woman goddess who represents motherhood, creation, and fertility. In almost every incarnation of this cult, the mother is said to have a son who is a co-heir with her in her divinity. In Canaan, it would have been Semiramis and her son Tammuz. Later, we'd hear this woman, the, the mother would be Ashtart or Ashtaroth or Ashtar or Ishtar and her son Baal, Baal. We can see it in German culture, in Scandinavian culture, Egyptian culture with Horus and a reincarnation of her slain husband Osiris as her son. In India, in Asia, in Rome, the virgin was Fortuna and her son was Jupiter Pur. In Greece, the virgin mother was Irene and her son was Pluto. It's even in China we see it, Xing Mu, with a child in her own hands. So we see this cult, this pagan religious cult, all throughout the various cultures of the world and all throughout the generations. Even the idea of Mother Earth in today's eco-fascist movement draws upon the virgin mother, queen of heaven picture of Worship. And as we connect this idea to Scripture, we find various manifestations of this mother-child cult as they interacted with the nations of Israel and Judah over the years as well. I mentioned already Semiramis and her son Tammuz. I mentioned already Astarte and her son Baal. 
But the mother-child cult all began, if history and tradition informs us properly, with Nimrod. Religious history states that Nimrod wielded great authority and power in the world following the flood. He had a wife named Semiramis, who was therefore Nimrod's queen and also wielded great power in the region. Tradition states that Nimrod meant a very violent death at the hands of others in the kingdom. Semiramis, eager to retain power, sought to attribute the privileges of Messiah to Nimrod. Everyone knew that there was coming a day when there would be a Messiah, and Semiramis says, I am going to use the circumstances at hand and the religious zeal of the people that are around me, and I am going to claim that Nimrod is, in fact, that Messiah. Now, remember, everyone in that culture would know the promises of Messiah rooted in Genesis 3.15, the promises that there was coming a day when a woman would bear a child and that that child would uh, bruise the head of the serpent and that that child's heel would be bruised in the, in, in the course of those events. They knew the prophecies of Enoch, where Enoch said that the Lord would be coming with 10,000s of his saints, as we read about in Jude. Tradition tells us that Semiramis stated that Nimrod had given his life willingly and then had ascended into heaven and in doing so had crushed the head of the serpent as God had promised to Eve. She then contended that Nimrod had experienced a resurrection in the form of her son that she had born, a child named Tammuz. Semiramis thus became the mother of the resurrected God and the image of her holding her son as her equal and, and he equal to his father was born. So then Semiramis and her son were both elevated to deity. Semiramis being the mother goddess and Tammuz being the only son. This woman was called by various names throughout various cultures over time. The virgin mother. By the way, Semiramis did claim virginity. Holy mother. Alma mater, which means nourishing mother. And the highest title that was given to her was that of Queen of Heaven. And what this is by identity is a perversion and a counterfeit of the gospel of the Messiah that would come. And this was certainly by Satan's design. Satan is clever. He has established this mother-child cult in satanic religions throughout history as a means by which to confuse and muddy the waters of the gospel when at last our Savior would be born. By simply taking the idea, the promise that a virgin would, would, would conceive and bring forth a son and that that son would be Emmanuel, God with us, by taking that and just adding a few little tweaks to it, Satan could effectively take the very gospel of Jesus Christ and he could pervert it into a satanic system that would subvert people from the truth rather than draw them unto the truth. So Satan knew that if he could set up a counterfeit system that elevated the mother unto or even above the Son of God whom she would bear, then he could redirect and confuse the true faith into false worship in the name of Mary herself. And that's exactly what we see. We see it in all of these satanic cults throughout time, and we see it as well in what the Roman Catholic Church has done. And it began with this slow creep. In 431, we would not believe that there was any true heresy related to Mary mainstream in the churches. It is decided at the Council of Ephesus in 431 that Mary is the mother of God. And people say, hmm, I don't know about the language. I mean, she's the mother of Jesus. And yes, Jesus is God. So fine. Okay. Jesus is the Mary of God. It's all well. It's all good. But now when it's time for a pagan to come into the church and say, this is just like what we were worshiping before. This is just like what we worshiped when we thought through the idea of, of, of Fortuna and her son Pluto. Or was it Jupiter Pura? I don't, I don't remember which one's Roman, which one's Greece. Either way, this is just like that Greek legend. This is just like that Roman legend. This is just like our paganism. This is the same thing. Of course Mary is the mother of God. Of course she is co-redemptress. Of course she is this one who is without sin because she bore the one who is without sin. Of course this is just the mother-child religion that we've always worshipped and in doing so, it does not draw people to Christ. It draws people away from the gospel. 
So Mary in 431 was given this change of title, which on that day probably changed nothing else, but which would be used by Roman Catholics throughout the centuries to then pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the next point in history, the Council of Constantinople in 553 A.D. In 553 A.D. at the Council of Constantinople, which was attended primarily by the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Western Church had already, it would seem, have generally established this point already, although I couldn't find consensus as to exactly when it was. But at this time, we see a another affirmation. And this council affirmed a false doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, stating that she was a virgin before during and after the birth of Christ, giving her the title of perpetual virgin at this council. Now, this does not make any biblical sense, since we know that Mary had several more children after bearing Jesus. And we know that Jesus was a sign that was given, and that that sign that was given was that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son. We do not see the sign rooted in the fact that Mary is Mary. We see Mary being a vessel that is used to bring a son, and the sign is that the son was brought ab about by a virgin birth. Not, the sign was not that a, vir that, that, that a woman was a virgin. The sign was that that woman who is a virgin would bring forth a son. That son would be the, the reality of that sign. But the reason why it mattered is because beginning with the statement that Mary is the mother of God, the focus of the virgin birth in the church began to shift from the miraculous way that God brought forth his son for the purpose of bypassing the line of Adam and bringing God in flesh into Adam's line without his sin to bear the sin of Adam's race. And now the focus shifts to Mary rather than Jesus because she is And as we discussed regarding the mother-child cult, this means if she's the mother of God, this means that she holds authority over God. This means that she is the one who stands above God because she is the mother of God. She must be then the queen of heaven. And thus she is, in very pagan style, a perpetual virgin. By the way, the same thing is often stated in witchcraft. Again, especially in that eco-fascist idea, the idea of perpetual virginity. And so you'll see in, in various witchcraft-type uh, um, settings, you'll see terrible fornication and promiscuity and, and sexual sin. And yet, throughout the ritual, they will all wear white as a means by which to express their purity throughout the events. This is that same idea. And from this point, there was very little more added to the official Roman Catholic doctrine until well after the Re Reformation challenged and indeed degraded the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. Yet as a part of the counter-Reformation efforts, as a matter of fact, some of these efforts are quite recent, the need to deify Mary became more and more important in the Catholic Church. And that leads us to Pope Pius IX, on December 8th, 1854, Pope Pius IX released his Ineffabilis Deus, which defined the false doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. This doctrine is a further establishment of Romanism as a part of the mother-child cult. The belief that Mary herself was conceived without sin. So not just that Jesus was born and he was born outside of Adam because he was born of a virgin birth, so he had no human father to pass down that sin nature from father to son and father to daughter as has been done from Adam going all throughout history so that Romans 5 tells us that in Adam all died. But also then that, well, if Jesus was born without sin, then it must be that Mary was also conceived without sin. In order for Jesus to be without sin, naturally it necessitated that his mother have no sin. Now, this was not the first time that this idea was proposed. As the Council of Trent held between 1545 and 1563, there were similar ideas proposed. But this was when it was officially brought into the canon of the Catholic Church. Of course, this is nowhere in the Bible. It's biblically unnecessary. For as we just said, 
The virgin birth means Jesus was born human with a human mother, but not a human father. And as I just said, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The Bible states clearly that it was Adam that brought sin into the world, and that it is Adam that, that then passed that sin on, that it is the fathers that through our headship pass our sin on to our children. And Jesus, by being born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Ghost, was able to bypass that sin nature while still being 100% human through the reality of his human mother. All men sinned because of Adam. Adam's sin passed to all men. Not Eve's sin, Adam's sin. By being conceived of the Holy Ghost, Jesus could be 100% man and 100% God. But as we would come to expect, this false doctrine of the Immaculate Conception had nothing to do with Jesus. Had nothing to do with clarifying the gospel. It was all about Mary. Further deifying Mary. For now, Mary is the mother of God, perpetual virgin, without sin. Immaculately conceived. And then we come to the final error as it relates to Mary, relatively speaking. And that is the assumption of Mary. November 1st, 1950. So now we're into the mid-1900s. That This is Pope Pius Twelfth now. The declaration of this encyclical, however, states that Mary was assumed into heaven, body and soul. That's what it means. The assumption of Mary means that Mary was assumed into heaven, body and soul. In other words, that because Mary was without sin, right? The mother of God, perpetual virgin, without sin. She needed no resurrection to be sinless. In order for you to be sinless... And in order for me to be sinless, we have to cast off the body of this death and we have to be clothed in immortality. We have to be clothed in the resurrection. But the Catholic Church says, the Roman Catholic Church says, well, wait a minute. If Mary is the mother of God, the queen of heaven, perpetual virgin and without sin, well, then she, didn't, she doesn't need a resurrection. As a matter of fact, how dare we assume that she died and would need a resurrection? Instead, that, that because she was without sin, needing no resurrection to be sinless, she was simply assumed into heaven at the end of her days on earth, similar to Jesus' ascension following his death, only she didn't die. She didn't need to die. The Catechism thus states this. The Immaculate Virgin, Virgin, excuse me, preserved free from all stain of original sin when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into heavenly glory and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things. Thus officially making her the queen of heaven and inducting Mary fully into the satanic mother-child cult. Okay, so I've given you a lot of this history. But why? Why? I've given you all of this history so that you and I can gain a historical perspective. And then we can submit that historical perspective to a biblical perspective. My message today is not about all of the ways that Roman Catholic heresies surrounding Mary are in fact heresies. However, I, among many historic teachers and preachers, find it very strange that, according to Roman Catholic dogma, we are to venerate Mary as the mother of God, perpetual virgin, immaculately conceived without sin, and assumed into heaven with the title of the Queen of Heaven. And yet, though she was this, this entity, when she was standing outside calling to her son in Mark chapter 3, and Jesus knew that she was there, Jesus looked at the men and women pressing him, and he said, all those who do the will of God are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Jesus gave her, his mother no special treatment on that day, no spiritual regard on that day. Now we know that as a son, he took care of his mother. As a matter of fact, one of the final things he said on the cross was that he committed his mother's safekeeping and well and, and care to John the Apostle. But spiritually, Jesus disregards that his mother and his brethren hold any higher regard than any other in his eyes. Were Mary the only woman in history conceived without sin? 
so pure that she needed no resurrection, but that her body and soul together were assumed into heaven in natural purity, where she took the place as queen over all things, as co-redemptress and heir with her son in the kingdom of heaven. One might think that Jesus might have had a different response to her on this day in Mark chapter 3. Thus telling us why any Holy Spirit indwelled person already know, what any Holy Spirit in person indwelled person already knows. That the Roman Catholic Church, that its dogmas are not church dogmas at all. But has, as we can see from history, the Roman Catholic Church has carried the spirit of Antichrist from age to age through its false teachings, yoking men to bondage and error, and God will not hold its representatives and leaders guiltless on the day of judgment. So that's what we say about Mary. Now let's talk about family. This is a kind of a transitional point. I'm not going to spend long on this point, and we'll transition into our final point about the church. I give this uh, point effectively as a clarification before we enter into point three. Christian, God put you into a family. He gave you the parents you have. And he has commended, commanded in no uncertain terms that you honor your parents in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 makes it clear. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Family is also, as we understand it, one of the three primary God-ordained institutions. Family is intended by God to be the foundation of a functional society as a unit through which children are taught, through which they are raised to be functional members of society, and the unit through which basic commerce compelled the free exchange of goods and services under mutual benefit. All of this is designed to be under the authority that God has instituted in family. When God said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. To this end, family is an important thing. It is a foundational institution. It is one that is not to be dismissed, nor is it to be taken lightly. We recognize even as uh, Timothy calls the church to care for those widows that are widows indeed, that that is only under the assumption that the family itself has breached, has disregarded their responsibility to take care of their own. So that Old Testament and New, we see the importance of those taking care of we who are in our family. However, Jesus does also state something quite unambiguous about the family in this passage. Family is a God-ordained institution. And while this is the case, Jesus makes it clear that loyalty to family is not the highest that a Christian has claim, uh, that, 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 that takes, that lays claim upon a Christian. Nor is it the highest good. And so with that in mind, let's talk about the church. Jesus said on this day that his family, that his brothers, his sisters, and his mother were those who did the will of God. And what is the will of God? Well, Jesus would answer that question in John chapter 6, verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So those that do the will of God are those who believe unto everlasting life, those who will be raised up on the last day. Jesus tells us that those who do the will of God are his family. And this family, the family of God, known in our time as the church, the assembly of all those who have come to faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ as their sole hope of eternal life. And in any given area, it is the local church that is the embodiment of this principle in our lives. Now, no one gets to choose their family. You're born into a family and you don't get to choose it. In a sense... This is just as true of the spiritual as it is of the physical. We Americans struggle with this concept because denominationalism has meant that a believer can choose between various churches as pertains to their immediate church family. And as we talked about before, whether that's a good or a bad thing, we've also talked before about whether or not that's even fixable in our society. 
But as we look at Jesus' teachings through the gospel, what we find is that the local church is intended to become a collection of people who are mo mo uh, more devoted to one another than even they are to their blood family. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10, verses 30 through 39. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that the gospel is inherently divisive. And the call of the gospel is that it has a claim on you. The call is that, that we are to take the claim of the gospel that rests upon us as higher in value and priority than even the rightful claims of our blood family. So that Jesus says, any man who would love father and mother more than him is not worthy of him and cannot be his disciple. To this then the believer might despair. For though we hope and pray that the call of the gospel does not ever sever us from our blood family, and thank God many in our midst it has not been so, that you have not had to be severed from your blood family as you have answered the call of the gospel. The potential is always there for it exactly that, isn't it? And the question becomes, Pastor, if Jesus says that I must leave father and mother and houses and lands for, for, for the gospel, that, that I must take up my cross and follow him, must then I not get family? If I must place family below the gospel, if my family is not willing to follow Christ into the gospel, must then I lose that familial bond? Must there be a familial void that stays in my heart? Must I walk through life without family if in fact I'm asked to choose the gospel at the expense of my family? And the answer to this is no. Now it'll be a while before we get there, but in Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, Jesus said this, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake in the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. Jesus says that the man who loves him more than father and mother than sister or brother, than wife or child, than houses or land, will receive in this life 100-fold of these things, though it will not come without persecutions. That when you are asked to set aside various elements of the relationship with you and your blood family for the sake of the gospel, that when the gospel calls you to have to necessarily separate yourself from those who you love and hold dear because of your loyalty to the higher principles of truth, that in that day you might say, I have just lost so much. How can, I, how can I lose so much as it relates to family? But Jesus says, there's none who does this thing who does not receive 100-fold. Now in Jesus' day in Mark chapter 3, he's telling us what that looks like. He looks at all of those around him and he looks at whichever ones of those were doing the will of God. And he says, these are my brothers and these are my sisters and my mother. He recognizes that he has received them. Now, in this case, we know that Mary would have been one who, who, who um, would also have been a, a follower. And several of Jesus' brothers ended up becoming followers of Jesus Christ as well. And yet the principle is here. He says, I have brothers and sisters and mothers right here in those that follow the will of God. How is it then that a man can yield his family for the gospel only to receive it 100-fold in this life? Well, through the church. That's how. Through those people who are intended by God to be the ones who you prioritize more than anyone else in the world. 
And the scriptures speak to this regularly. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality. Paul commands the church in Romans 12 to prefer one another, to distribute to the necessity one of another, to pray one for another. Perhaps well summed up in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them that are of the household of faith. Yes, we do good unto all men, but we in honor prefer those who are of the household of faith. And this is what our Savior reflected on that day. That his brethren, his sisters, his mother, they were those who would do the will of God. These are our brothers, our sisters, our fathers, our mothers. And we ought to treat them as such. Paul commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. Why? Well, because this is what we are, Christians. We are the household of faith. We are the family of God. And with this comes all the love and all the service and all the loyalty and all the devotion and all the sacrifice and all the honor that one would expect should be given to a group of people whom God has ordained to be a family. We should not take this lightly. We should not take this loyalty without care. We should see this as that important. Well summarized in 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read a chunk here. Paul says, For as the body is one and hath many members, and all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. Skipping to verse 23. And those members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members are with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. God has tempered the body together and made each part important so that there would be no schism in the body. But when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member is honored, we feel that honor and we rejoice because we are all the body of Christ and members in particular. So then how are we doing this evening, Christian? Is this how you see the church? Is this how you treat the church? Is this the kind of care and devotion and sacrifice you make for the church? Maybe your blood family is wonderful. Maybe they are believers and you have a great relationship and you love to spend time with them and this kind of love and devotion is evident in your interactions with them and that is a wonderful thing. And you can take all of the principles and you can apply them by extension to your family because your family is walking side by side with you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that isn't enough, Christian. Your duty rests upon the church, not exclusively. As I said, right after Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 to treat one another as family in all purity, they exhort about the, women, the, the widows indeed. And he exhorts family members to be the ones who are first and foremost to care for widows in their midst before the church should feel the responsibility of doing so. To this end, we know that it is the duty of blood, blood family, uh, that it doesn't just disappear at salvation. But the duty toward the church is also in no way inferior to your duty to your family. And for those whose blood family isn't wonderful, and to those who have never known this kind of relationship with your blood family, 
and you have left all to follow the gospel, and you choosing to follow the gospel has alienated you from father or mother or sister or brother. You don't have believing blood parents, perhaps. But you do have believing parents in the church, Christian. Give them honor as you would honor your parents. And enjoy the benefits that come from the mutual love of a functioning parent-child relationship in the church. So you don't have believing children, parent. You have believing children in the church. Invest in them as you would your own children. And enjoy the satisfaction of seeing those children that you have influenced grow up and make choices for Christ. So you don't have believing brothers or sisters. You have believing brothers or sisters in the church. Invest in them. Give time to them. Pour into them. And watch as your spiritual siblings are able to make right choices and work together and grow together unto the end of spiritual success. And in this way, as we have left all and followed Christ, a functional local church becomes for you a very real remuneration of whatever losses you may have incurred by following Christ. And may it be so in our own church this evening that we would truly be a family, the body of Christ, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, unto the edifying of itself in love, as we're exhorted to do in Ephesians. May we be a functioning local church who is the family of God and who fills in those needs where those needs are evident, who love one another, who are loyal to one another. For indeed, on that day, Jesus said, my family are those that will do the will of God. And so it is by Christ's design that we would live into such a family mindset as well. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.